0: Revolutionary. The nature of Christianity is inherently revolutionary. You, you can't look at the claims that Christ makes. You can't look at the claims that Scripture makes and not think of how incredibly revolutionary they are. I think of this particularly during Advent season as we're looking forward to Christmas and thinking about the claims that the Bible makes about Jesus. You know, perhaps the most important miracle that's mentioned in the Bible is the resurrection. Everything hinges upon that one central event. But in terms of what the most shocking miracle is, the incarnation ranks up there. J.I. Packer, in his classic book, Knowing God, describes how this is a shocking point and really a stumbling block for many. He says, "...the real staggering Christian claim is that Jesus of Nazareth was God-made man, that the second person of the Godhead became the second man." 1 Corinthians 15, 47. Determining human destiny, the second representative of the head of the race, and that he took humanity without loss of deity, so that Jesus of Nazareth was truly and fully divine as he was human. Here are two mysteries for the price of one, the plurality of persons within the unity of the Godhead, and the union of the Godhead and manhood in the person of Jesus. It is here in the thing that happened at the first Christmas that the profoundest and most unfathomable depths of Christian revelation lie. The Word became flesh. God became man. The divine Son became a Jew. The Almighty appeared on earth as a helpless human baby unable to do more than lie and stare and wriggle and make noises, needing to be fed and changed and taught to talk like any other child. And there was no illusion or deception in this. The babyhood of the Son of God was a reality. The more you think about it, the more staggering it gets. Nothing in fiction is so fantastic as this truth of the Incarnation. Christianity is inherently revolutionary. You can't read the type of claims that Christianity makes without undergoing a radical transformation. We've just heard singing mentioning a king of kings. That is an authority claim. That is a claim of dominion over all things. You can't hear that. You can't claim to believe that without going through a radical transformation. But even though Christianity is inherently revolutionary, one of the most important things we've got to determine is, what type of revolution is it? Re- revolution, I've been throwing that word out there. It might be helpful to uh, define it a little bit. When, I ta- when I'm talking about revolution, revolution is overth- an overthrow of ruling powers for the purpose of establishing new ones. That's why we no longer pay homage to the sovereign over England. We don't have a king. We don't have a queen ruling over this nation. It's the overthrow of ruling powers for the purpose of establishing new ones. But the, in the nature of our Christian life as it currently is, The revolution isn't one of external circumstances. When you look at the revolutions of the world, most of them are concerned with how can we change our external circumstances to make our lives better? The inherent nature of the revolution presented in the incarnation, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is a revolution of a different sort. And we're going to be looking at how radical this revolution is in the exhortation we have today in Titus chapter 2. The the claims in part of this are extremely, mind-bogglingly shocking. That unless you understand Christianity as a revolution, you will not understand why these claims are made. Read with me, if you would, Titus chapter 2, beginning in verse 7. Hear the word of the Lord. This is the Apostle Paul speaking to Titus. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame. "...having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters. In everything they are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior." We have in this passage several shocking statements. This whole paragraph, we covered the first half of the paragraph last week, and we'll be covering this second half this week, has to deal with doctrine. The passage started out, But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. And we talked a little bit last week, and it bears repeating, about how doctrine's a little bit different than what we would expect it. You know when we we think about doctrine these days you you think of long tedious theological books that d- describe you know these nitpicky theological ideas but what what follows in, in the paragraph is very practical ways in which men women Titus slaves old women young women old men, young men, the way in which all these people are to practically live their everyday lives in a way that honors and glorifies God. So we had to rework our definition of doctrine a little bit. We said uh, doctrine simply means the content of teaching, but part of our problem is we have a a bad concept of teaching because when we think of teaching, we think of going out and sitting and having a desk and writing on notepaper. But I, I want you to think of more practical teaching than that. I want you to think of teaching like somebody teaching you how to play the piano or somebody teaching you how to cook. The, the, the true nature of teaching is equipping somebody to a purpose. And so the, the, the way you find out whether or not somebody has a good piano teacher is by hearing them play. Whether, whether The way in which you find out if somebody has... A good cooking teacher by sampling some of their food might be dangerous if they're not a good, good cook. The way in which you determine what type of God somebody has is by looking at their lives. And this entire passage is exhorting people to live in a way that is radically different than the rest of the world as a reflection of the character and nature of their God. If our God is who He says He is, then we should live in a way that is radically different than the rest of the world. We see in Titus's example that it changes the way we treat our enemies. By the way, this revolution that we're talking about is an internal revolution. The, the revolution that Christ comes to establish is one that is a change of our internal reality not our external circumstances. And and for Titus, the exhortation reveals how we have a radical change in how we treat our enemies. He says to Titus, "...show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. In your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent..." may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us i I, I don't know if you know this about human nature uh, but people reach conclusions and then search for evidence to support it Uh, i'm I'm tempted to bring politics in here at this point but I'll, i'll try and avoid that mess people reach a conclusion and then they'll look for support to it by the way, this, this, is, this shows itself up in, in all sorts of ways. If somebody has a negative, exam, a negative idea of you, guess what they're going to see? They're going to notice all the bad things you do, all the, and all the good things you fail to do. If somebody has a positive view of you, what are they going to be looking at? I are mean, looking at the nice things you do, the good things you do. They might even dismiss some of the bad things you do. And so people reach conclusions and then they add evidence in later on. By the way, this is something that's going on with with the opponents of Christianity in Crete. Paul's saying, look, they're looking at you. And do you know what they're looking for? They're looking for ways to dismiss you as a messenger of God. They're, They're looking for reasons and excuses to dismiss the ideas that you're presenting about God and who He is. They don't like you because of what you said about sin and righteousness and forgiveness and this Jesus person and the cross. Those things are offensive to say we we needed to be saved like that, to say we need to be submitted to that king. So they're looking at you, and they're looking for an excuse to disbelieve you. They're looking for an excuse to accuse you is uh, what I want you to do is live such a good life and to treat them so well that they have nothing bad to say about you or your God. And they'll be ashamed of the fact that they can't find it. This is the way the Christian revolution says to treat your enemies. Now, if you look at any other revolution, how do they treat the opponents of the revolution? They're traitors to the cause. They are oppressed, suppressed, or killed. They're eliminated. This Christian revolution sounds a bit different. You're to love your enemies. You're to treat them well. In your conduct before them, you are to honor and glorify God. No matter how much you suffer, no matter how unjustly they treat you, and speaking of injustice and, and reflecting God's character in unjust circumstances, if you think that's bad, wait until you see what comes next. Verse 9, my translation says bondservants, um, which is a nicer word for slaves, really. The, the, this following exhortation is to slaves. It says, slaves are to be submissive to their own masters in everything, they are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilferling, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Now, first of all, this points out how, we, how the revolutionary nature of Christianity changes how we function under unjust authority. Uh, This passage isn't condoning slavery, but it's telling people how to live justly in the midst of an unjust system. We could talk about how um, the ancient world slavery was different than the North Atlantic slave trade. We could talk about those distinctions and, and, and how it's different, but that's not really the emphasis of the text. The emphasis of the text is saying if you're a slave and if you're in that circumstance, how do you honor God? We are to look at how do we function justly in the midst of an unjust situation. And it's hard to imagine a worse situation than being a slave, than, be, than being treat, treated as property. When we look through Scripture, we see a lot of examples of authority that may not be just or godly, yet is placed there under God's just rule and authority. We we see in the life of, of David, David submitted to Saul. You ever think about that? David, who was anointed king, was was under Saul's authority as the current reigning king, even when Saul was pursuing him to try and kill him. David had opportunity after opportunity to kill Saul, to get rid of his problems, to establish himself on the throne. And he could have come up with a lot of good reasons to. Instead, what does he do? Even though the authority is unjust and it's unjustly persecuting him and unjustly pursuing him, he submits to the overarching authority of God and having an unjust leader and ruler of the people and does not rebel against him. We, we see it in, in some of the other exhortations by, by the way, as I talk about this kind of authority and things like that, there's certain concepts that are lost on us in our modern day and age. Uh, one, one of the things I'm doing right now is I'm reading, I'm starting to read. I start a lot of books. I, I don't always finish them all. But I'm starting a book on Jonathan Edwards. And I'm, I'm just in the introduction now, So, uh, and it's like in... It's a thick book, so there's chances of me making it all the way through are are slim to none. Uh, But as I'm starting this book, one of the things it's mentioning in the introduction is trying to get modern readers into the mindset of the cultural setting that Edwards lived in. And one of the things it's mentioning that we have a hard time relating to is that Edwards lived in a hierarchical society. That is, you had to understand who was above you, who was below you, who is your social superior, who is your social inferior, how to relate to them, how, what your responsibility was to those over you, what your responsibility was to those who are under you. And in most of our relationships in this day and age, we don't think in, let's see, vertical terms. We don't think of who's above and below us. We, just, we, we think more in horizontal terms, like everybody's kind of equal. You know, we're all kind of on the same footing. Uh, we're all created with certain inalienable rights. You know, things like that are ingrained in our culture and thinking. But in the ancient world, the world in which the Bible writes, and really for most of history, is one that is largely hierarchical. We're understanding who's above you and who's below you and what the proper response to them and responsibility to them is, was extremely important. Now, we still have it a little bit in our culture. You know, you, we have teachers and students. That's a, an important relationship to understand, okay, what's, what's the teacher's job? What's my job in response to the teacher? How do I respond to them? Or as a teacher, what is my responsibility over the student? We have it in, in government, we have it in uh, police work, under, understanding the nature of the law and its authority over us. But here is a situation where there are people under authority, and that authority is not necessarily a righteous, a, a godly, or a good ruler. Ruler. We, we see this in an example from Paul. Paul, in, in his writing, says to pray for the rulers and, and those in authority over you. I believe that's in, in Philippians. Uh, he's writing to Philippians in the midst of a government-induced persecution. Some people believe that that was written during the time of Nero. Now, when you hear, you know, pray for those who are in authority, you make sure that you're submissive to the rulers and the authorities. And then you think, well, who's on the throne at that time? Who's ruling the empire of Rome at that period? And you think it's Nero who sets Christians on fire. Now, if it's an earthly revolution, what do you do when somebody starts lighting your people on fire? You fight back. You rally the troops. You gather everyone. But the Christian revolution is of a different nature. We see it in Jesus' relationship to earthly authorities, in his relation to Pilate. He he, He doesn't come in and overthrow. He comes in meek. He comes in humble. This internal revolution exists in anticipation of a final revolution. So as we say all these things, that it's an internal revolution, that doesn't mean that Christianity ignores people's external circumstances. It doesn't mean we have an excuse to ignore people when they're needy, when they're hungry, when they're desperate, when they're impoverished. And in fact, the internal revolution that we experience necessitates that we respond to those needs. And the internal revolution we have is preparing us for an coming external revolution. There is coming a time when all injustice will be set aside. There is coming a time when all wickedness, all evil, is going to be destroyed. There's coming a time when all people will have to stand before a righteous and almighty God and account for their lives. This is one of the reasons why we try and live just lives in an unjust world. We try and live godly lives in an immoral world we try and reflect the character and nature of our god in such a way that the people around us notice by the way the worse circumstances you're in the more opportunity you have to bring god glory through those circumstances you notice in all in all these exhortations the one who he really emphasizes what they can give to god is the slaves He says, bondservants are to do all these things to be well pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. As a slave, they have much more opportunity to bring God glory. Why? Because they're in worse circumstances. And because they're in worse circumstances, they can show more the character and nature of a God who is merciful and just and gracious to those who oppose Him. A lot of times when we, we think about Christianity, we want, to, we want to start the revolution like Peter does in the Garden of Gethsemane. He sees the soldiers approaching He thinks, all right, it's go time. What's he do? He, he pulls out the sword, cuts off somebody's ear. He's ready to go. What does Jesus do? He picks the ear back up and puts it on the guy again. He, I wonder what Peter was thinking at that point. It's like, uh oh, this, this is going different than I thought. <laughs> Wait, now Jesus is going away with him? I better get out of here. The, the nature of Christ's first coming is to establish a spiritual rule over us. He's coming again to establish his full and final rule over all the created order. And until he comes back, our our job is not to be like Peter, nor is it to try and bring about the type of events his second coming is going to establish. It's to imitate his model in his first coming of reflecting the character and the nature of a God who loves sinners. The character and nature of a God who loves those who were in open rebellion against Him. Who changes His enemies to friends. Who changes people who were in rebellion against Him to His allies. We serve a radical and an amazing God. Because of who God is and what he has done for us, we are to live radically transformed lives. The type of lives where somebody who's looking at Titus and looking for a reason to get mad at Christianity says, gosh, I can't find anything. To live a type of life where if you were a slave owner and you had one of your slaves all, who all of a sudden starts becoming agreeable, all of a sudden starts working hard for you and your benefit, and you realize what you do to them. You realize the way you treat them. You think, wait a minute, something changed. Something's different. You ask them what's going on, and they say, I'm serving a greater master. I'm living in the midst of a different reality. We live in a day and age where everyone is focused on changing their external circumstances in an attempt to be happy, in an attempt to find peace, in an attempt to find joy. Christianity says that we have peace and joy and hope in Jesus Christ. And that through him and the work of his Holy Spirit, there is a transformative work going on within us that despite our external circumstances, we are able to experience joy and hope and peace. Who is your God? Is your God a God who loves rebels and desires to bring them into his kingdom? Is your God a God of mercy and grace? Is your God a God of justice? Is He worthy of honor? Is He worthy of glory? We have coming up in our next time together the reason for living this radically transformed life. And it has to do With the appearance of God's grace in the person of Jesus Christ and the coming glory that comes with Jesus' second coming. This Advent season, as we're reminded of the Christ who came to earth, of the God made man, don't forget that in order to honor that first coming, And in anticipation of his second coming, we should live revolutionary lives. In anticipation of the establishment of his kingdom for all time, for his glory and honor will not fail. Amen. Let us close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace and mercy to us. Lord, we thank you that you took those who were in rebellion against you and brought them to your side. Lord, we thank you that you took people who were enslaved to sin and freed us. We thank you, Lord, that you loved us despite our sin, and that you loved us too much to leave us in our sin. Lord, we pray that as a result of your word, as a result of your spirit, as a result in living in light of the reality of Christ's first coming, as a result in living in Anticipation of Christ's second coming, that we might be a people who are radically transformed from the inside out, that you might receive all honor, all glory, all praise through the lives of people who are radically committed, who are zealous for your glory and for your kingdom. In the beautiful name. Of Christ Jesus, the King of kings, we pray. Amen.